let's go ahead and get started. So as many of you uh, already know, the kind of the, the roadmap, the motto of our church is, is evangelize, equip, and empower. Uh, we also belong to a larger organization that we, uh, we uh, co-labor with called um, uh, Praise Chapel Christian Fellowship, and they uh, uh, have a very similar model. There's this win, build, and send. But the idea is, is that we're going to evangelize the community, we're going to equip them as disciples, and then we're going to empower them or send them out to do the same thing, to empower them to live their calling and make an impact on the kingdom of God. So this, over the next three weeks, we're going to go ahead and, and break these apart one by one. Um, today, we're going to obviously deal with uh, evangelize, what it means to, to evangelize in our community, what it means to us as a church. And the, the first question that we have to ask ourselves is, as a church, what are we here for? I mean, are we here to just come on, on Sunday mornings or, or Wednesday nights and sit together and, uh, and fellowship with one another and have a good time? Or, or are we here to be equipped to reach the lost? What is our purpose as a church? Our vision, if you will, is to, to reach this city. The whole purpose of Living Hope Family Church is not for us to come in and have a great time on Sunday. Well, I thank God that we can do that, right? We can come in and we can worship God and that's all part of it. But our purpose is to reach the lost in this city. That is our sphere of influence as the city of Marana. And the truth is that we have the life of Christ inside of us. As soon as you get saved, a miracle happens. It's a, it's a bona fide miracle. The old man is taken out of you. Your heart of stone is turned to flesh, and you have a, a new life placed inside of you. The Bible says that you are a new creation at that very moment that you believe. And at that moment, the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. And his life inside of us causes a change. You'll notice that you begin to see people different. His life inside of us causes us to love people. Like, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Wayne. I'm not really someone who loves people. That's just not me. Well, let me tell you, you're a new creation, and now that's you. If you have Christ inside of you, that is you. You can fight it all you want, but you have the Spirit of God inside of you, and he loves people. And if that's not enough for you, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this, Be imitators of me as what? As I am of Christ. We're supposed to imitate Christ. I want you to know, if you, if you read the Gospels, Jesus never locked himself up in a room and never told anybody anything. He didn't hide away, but he was telling people about salvation. Liberation, freedom. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That means that sometimes we've got to do things that we don't want to do if it means that we can impact somebody else, if we consider them more than ourselves. Let each of you look not only, in verse 4, let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But Pastor Wayne, that's not my mind. No, it says right here. Have this mind yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want you to know this was the mind of Christ. He loved people so much that he gave up his life so that we could have a brand new life, that we could live. He died. But I love what it says here in verse 5. It says, have this mind among yourselves. Have that same mind that we're willing to do anything for the people of this world. But he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
See, the truth is that everything that we do as a church will be with this goal in mind. You know, I never want to find ourselves in a, in a position where we have incredible programs. We have great programs. We have all this great stuff. But it's all inwardly focused. If we ever have a program that we put in place and we take a step back and we realize that, hey, this, this program doesn't fit in with our roadmap. It doesn't fit in with our goal to reach loss. We need to reevaluate what we're doing. Because ultimately the purpose is to evangelize the lost, to equip the saints and empower them to do the same. When we do outreaches, the whole point is to reach people that have never been touched by the gospel or those who have been rejecting it for some time. Just maybe we can make an impact in their life and have an inroad that they would accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Even when we do stuff like volunteering at the food bank, we look at that and, and if you guys have been there with us, you'll notice that we really don't get to see anybody there. We're just sitting there and, 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 and taking care of the community. Matter of fact, there's one guy we saw this week. It was Dan. He works for us. That's the only person we saw. But you know, we're still making an impact. Our name is being known. You know what? It's going to be, there's going to come a time when we say, hey, you know, we're from Living Hope Family. Oh, wasn't that the church that I've heard about you guys? You guys are helping out of the food bank. You're doing this, you're doing that. And that gives us the opportunity to minister the gospel. Everything that we do has that focus is to reach the lost. Everything we do is to show Christ's love for this community so that they would have an opportunity to receive that same love for themselves. But if they don't see that love in us, what's going to make them think that? I mean, have you ever seen Christians who are like, man, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian if that's what it's like. We don't ever want to be those people. So let's get started here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Everybody knows this verse, right? It's the Great Commission. It's been referred to in, in our society as the Great Omission. But it's actually the Great Commission. And I want you to know this just isn't a good idea. This is a commandment. We're to go into all the world and make disciples. You see, Jesus has all authority in this earth. And he has the ability to delegate authority to us. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. He has he given that authority to us to make disciples, to heal the sick. You see, Jesus exercised his authority to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, and even his authority to forgive sins. And we have all that same authority inside of us. We have the authority to go out there and teach, tell people about God. We have the authority to, to heal people in the name of Jesus. We have the, heal, the authority to cast out demons. And while we don't personally have the authority to forgive sins, we have the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of sins because they've already been forgiven in him. And we're not just called to make converts. It's actually probably one of the things that the, the church in America as a whole is very good at. We're actually very good at making converts. Pretty poor at making disciples. We have great success in getting people to come up and say a prayer, but then they never get followed up, followed up on. They never get touched. They never, and they, they just slip through the cracks. They receive the word with great promise, but the enemy comes and steals it away from their heart. But we're called to make disciples. 
says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to lead people to the Lord and then get them involved, help them grow, encourage them, and strengthen them. You see, and being a disciple is a lot like being an apprentice. Apprentice. You know, you start, you don't have it all figured out, but you start and you get up underneath somebody and they teach you and they help you grow. And finally, the ultimate goal is for you to, to blossom into your full calling and do the same to others. And then there's been many people who would argue that, oh no, this, this is Jesus talking to the, to the disciples. This isn't for us. This is, this is, he was talking to just the 12 disciples. They're the ones who are supposed to go out and build the church. And it's true, he was speaking to the disciples. But if it was only for the disciples, then why do we find in other scriptures people that were not disciples doing this very thing? In Acts 6, 2-6, through it says, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of God, good, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of the wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephan, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So the great thing first we find is that the apostles are, are there doing what they're supposed to be doing, but they say, you know what, it's, it's not good for us to do this. So let's, let's raise up people underneath us. And they begin discipling these men, and we see this list of men. So as we're looking here, we, we find Stephen, who has been rose up, and we find Philip, those are the two we'll look at, and they were rose up to serve widows, to serve soup. You know, we, that doesn't seem like a mighty calling of God. Doesn't seem. I mean, you know, it's 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 everything in the kingdom of God is important. But they were using this opportunity to raise up men of God. But if you continue reading in the book of Acts, we're going to see these men again. And in Acts chapter six, seven through eight, it says the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, or Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now we have Stephen out there preaching the gospel. He's doing great signs and wonders. We have, we have a man that was just called up and he was, he was converted. He gave his life to Christ. And then he was discipled up under the, he was acted as a disciple under the apostles. And then they sent him out. Now he's preaching the gospel. If Jesus was just talking to the twelve apostles, then why do we find others do the same thing in the, in the, in the gospel, in the Bible? In Acts chapter 8, 4 through 6, it says, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs that he was performing. The great thing about Philip is he left Jerusalem, and he was actually the first missionary in that area. Peter didn't show up till way later. They came after they heard about the great things that Philip was doing. The Great Commission is not just for the apostles. It is for each and every one of us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to go out and make disciples preach the good news. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Proclaim forgiveness. Proclaim newness of life. Because the truth is, there's a need out there right now in the, in the community. In the world, there is a need. 
In Romans 3, 10 through 18, it says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curse and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, basically, <clears throat> Paul has taken scriptures from dozens of places in the Old Testament. These are all pulled, all these different little lines are pulled from different places in the Old Testament. Prophecy saying that these people, there's none that is righteous, not even one. We find out down here that their paths are in ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. The truth is that there is a need for the gospel. There is a need for Jesus in people's lives because... They're running around with nothing, misery and pain. They have no hope. You remember back in your life, there was probably a time that you can remember you were yearning for something. You may not even have known what it was. But if you look back at your life, you can see all the places that you were looking for it. Now the truth is the people in this world are doing the same thing. They're looking for something. They may, even not, may not even know they're missing it, but they're looking for it in drugs and alcohol and women and sex and all these different things. Work, their job, money. They're looking everywhere. And they have no peace. They have no hope because they need Jesus. Stephen Curtis Chapman said this, In the Gospel, we discover that we are far worse off than we thought but far more loved than we ever dreamed. In the book Love Found a Way, Ron Mel writes this. He says, Whenever I drive to the east side of Portland over the Marquand Bridge, I'm reminded of what it took for God to save us. On the upper deck of that two-decker freeway spanning the wide Willamette River, you can catch a glimpse of an exit that drops off <clears throat> into empty space. When the bridge was built back in the mid-1960s, it was designed to accommodate an east-running freeway still on the drawing boards, which was to be known as the Mount Hood Freeway. But the freeway was never built. Oregon voters opted for a light rail instead, and plans for the highway were scrapped. Even though there is no Mount Hood Freeway, you can certainly see Mount Hood from the top deck of the Marquand Bridge. On a clear day, it looms in the eastern horizon, a symmetrical snow-capped beauty. And if you look carefully, you can see how the bridge was built to accommodate a freeway lane veering off to the southeast. As it juts out just a bit from the bridge structure, then is cut off as though sliced by a giant knife. The exit, permanently blocked, now goes nowhere except into the waters of the Willamont far below. You can see Mount Hood in all its beauty glistening like a jewel in the distance, but you could never, never reach the high slopes of that mighty peak via the Mount Hood Freeway because the freeway doesn't exist. It says that's a picture of man's relationship with God. We might understand there is a God and even yearn to reach Him access, I'm sorry, across an impossible distance. We might recognize His power and glory, His majesty and His goodness, and desire with all of our hearts to know Him and be with Him, but the distance is too great. The gulf is too wide. Only through Jesus Christ can we cross that gulf to God the Father. That's what's happening to the people of this world. They may recognize they need something. They may be looking for something they don't even know that they need. But they need Jesus. And it's our job to tell them about Him. To tell them that there's a God who loves them. There's a God who doesn't want them to be feeling the pain. There's a God who wants to make sure that they're cared for. Because you see, God doesn't love us for what we've done, but He loves us in spite of what we've done. 
You know, we, we can fall into a trap when we look at the world and start deciding who's worthy of being saved and who's not. Oh, they're, they're not good enough. They're doing terrible things. And oh, will we really want them in our church? But the truth is, God loves them. They need peace. They need restoration. And when we see people like this as Christians, we shouldn't shun them, but our hearts should hurt for them. The love of Christ should compel us to reach out to them and invite them into his heavenly kingdom. But the good news is we recognize that there's a terrible need out there, but there's also an incredible solution. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. One of the, the most overlooked scriptures because it's become, you know, cliche now. People have become jaded to it. This is an, an incredible passage of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Every time I preach this Scripture, if I was God, no one would be going to heaven. Because just thinking about giving up my son causes me such incredible pain that I don't think I could do it. He gave up His Son so that we could live. All of this because of his unimaginable love for us. In John 15, 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us because his love for us is so great that we can't even comprehend it. In any, any, and not even in our imagination can we comprehend the amount of love that he has for us. And the great part about it is, is his love is inexhaustible the same amount of love that He shows to me, He shows to you, and He shows to everybody out there in this city, in this world. And it can't be exhausted. We never have to be concerned that if we, if we uh, share the gospel with one more person that we might have a little bit less. Because God has more than enough. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. You notice I've been using the English Standard Version today. I started reading that one recently. But I like the translation of the New American Standard because it says we have this treasure in earthen vessels regarding us, our, our, our meat suits. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that someone lay down his life, or sorry, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. You know, we have a, a treasure inside of us that is incredible. And I find it interesting as you, as you talk to Christians and and even, even myself, there's times where, you know, when you want to speak to somebody and you get that, that shyness or that trepidation, you're a little bit, you know, like, man, I'm a little bit worried. What if, what if they say something mean to me? Yeah, go, over, go overseas in the Middle East. What if they kill you? And people are still sharing the gospel. You know, the treasure that we have is so incredibly valuable. And I tell you what, if any of us in this room were to win the lottery, I bet you all of our friends would know. If any of us in this room were to strike oil in the backyard, I'm sure you'd be telling some people. Now you shake your head, but you would. If you have a favorite team, I bet you tell some people. Even stuff as invaluable as your favorite sports team, you're telling people about it. But we have a treasure inside of us that's so great. Why is it that we shy away of telling the people about it? 
You know, there was a, 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 a very, um, and I forget his name, but he was a, a very uh, high-profile atheist. He's uh, in, in Vegas. He works on the Strip. He's a, he's a magician um, doing the acts there, but he's, he's pretty high-profile, and he's a, a well-known atheist. And he told this story. I watched a YouTube video of him come on, and he's holding this Bible, and he's reading it, and inside, someone after his show came up after and gave this Bible to him and said, you know what, I just want you to know that God loves you. Even though you're an atheist, he's still there and he loves you. And he signed this Bible and gave it to him and he's, he's looking at it. And, and he says, you know, I know there's no God, which we obviously we all disagree with him. But he says, I know there's no God. But this man came up and gave this to me. And he said, you know what, if he wouldn't have, he would be a hypocrite. Even if I don't believe, if he believes this, that means he thinks I'm going to hell. If I don't get saved, and if he believes this, if he didn't tell me about it, he would be a hypocrite. And he appreciated, well, I don't know if, it, if he ever got saved or anything came of it, he appreciated the fact that this is what the man believed and he operated on his faith. And the question I ask, if we believe this, why aren't we out in the streets yelling as loud as we can that we have something for you? Come get saved. Come know the joy of the Lord. Know the peace of the Lord. And like I said, the greatest part of this treasure is that it never runs out. I was thinking about this as I was writing this, this uh, sermon, I was, this message. I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like when Elisha went to that widow and he said, uh, gather all the jars and pots in the land and just keep pouring. And as long as she kept pouring, the treasure never, the oil never ran out. She just kept filling pot after pot after pot. And it's just like that with us. As long as we'll keep pouring into people's lives, it'll, this, tre- this treasure that we have inside of us, the love of Christ, is inexhaustible. It'll never run out. There's enough for everybody. When I was in Africa, we were, we were preaching to, uh, we were on a, uh, preaching to actually pastors of the community there. And uh, there was this one lady who was pastoring a church. Her, fu- her husband had passed away, so she took over the church. And we actually had something like 25 pastors get saved. Because they didn't even know that you, you needed Jesus. And they were pastoring churches. But I remember this one lady because as Pastor Mike was preaching the gospel and letting him know that there was enough for everybody, she fell on the ground and she began crying out, there's room for me. There's room for me. And she got saved right then when she recognized that there's room for her. In 2 Corinthians 2.17 it says, We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. I want you to know that when you're sharing the gospel with people, you're not sharing something that's inferior. You're not sharing, you know, we're not peddlers of the word of God. We're not trying to, for lack of a better term, just pawn off an inferior product, but what we have is so incredible. And people need it. And people want it even if they don't even recognize it. There's many people that don't even realize it. I know you can talk to many people, you hear their story, and, and you know, in the beginning, when they, people were ministering to them, they just wanted them to go away. They didn't want nothing to do with it. But afterwards, they're like, man, I'm so thankful that someone came and talked to me because I didn't even realize what I was missing. In Mark 2, 15 through 17, 
And we're going to take a look at the attitude of Christ, who we're supposed to be imitating. And it says, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus loved people. He loved all people, not just a subset, not those who just fit a certain economical or social class. And we find here that if you, if you think of sin as, as sickness, sin as disease, and forgiveness as a cure, Jesus is the physician that this world is looking for. And the truth is, there's, there's only three types of people that Jesus can't help. There are those who don't know or know of him, there are those who know of Him but refuse to trust Him. And there are those who won't admit that they need Him. The three people that Jesus can help. Those who rejected Him in some way or another. And the truth is, there's, there's not much that we can do for the second group and the third group. We can love them. We can share the Gospel with them. We can pray that the Holy Spirit would touch their hearts and that those walls would come down. But ultimately, that's a decision that they've got to make. But the first group, those who don't know of Jesus, that's decidedly our responsibility. You know, I never want to get up uh, in heaven and find out that somebody had to do the job that I was called to do because I was afraid to talk to somebody. I was afraid to do something. In Matthew 9.36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, you'll find this description used quite often to regard uh, people as sheep. And it's a provocative description because it, it describes people who, who are looking for something. They want to be led, but they're lost. These lost sheep, they're, they're like sheep. They, they want to be led. You see, sheep are unable to care for themselves. If you talk to, if you talk to uh, a shepherd, sheep are unable to fend for themselves. Pretty much without the shepherd, they're pretty much defenseless. They rely on the shepherd for everything. They rely on the shepherd for food and shelter and protection. And they operate with a herd mentality. If one of them starts doing something with confidence, they'll all follow right along beside them. You know, we laugh, but it's, it's, it's true. And it's true with people too. You find somebody, even if they're being deceptive, even if they're teaching something that's wrong, if they just have a little bit of confidence, people will follow them even if it's to their own doom. So, uh, I was reading about a, documentary, uh, a documentary on television. This, this gentleman says, he said, I observed this herd instinct a few years ago in a document, documentary on television. It was filmed in a packing house where sheep were being slaughtered for the meat market. Huddled in pens outside were hundreds of nervous animals. They seemed to sense danger in their unfamiliar surroundings. And then a gate was opened that led up a ramp and threw a door to the right. In order to get the sheep to walk up that ramp, the handlers used what was known as a Judas goat. This is a goat that has been trained to lead the sheep into the slaughterhouse. The goat did his job very efficiently. He confidently walked to the bottom of the ramp and looked back. Then he took a few more steps and stopped again. The sheep looked at each other skittishly and then began moving toward the ramp. Eventually, they followed the confident goat to the top where he went through a little gate to the left, but they were forced to turn to the right and went to their deaths. 
He said, as it was a dramatic illustration of unthinking herd behavior and the deadly consequences it often brings. Jesus said that, that he saw the crowds and had a compassion to them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd, being led to and fro when they needed the good shepherd in their lives. And that's what we can do. We can introduce people to Jesus. That they can stop being led to their doom, but led to life. In Luke 19.10, we find that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And in John 10.16, he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And in this particular case, he's talking about, uh, he's speaking to the Jewish people, so he's talking about Gentiles, or the, the people not of this fold of the Jewish community. He says, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. See, Jesus came to save the lost. That was his sole purpose of coming to this earth, was to die for sinners like we used to be. You know, you used to be a sinner, but when Jesus saved you, you're, not longer, you're no longer one. You're now a saint. He says, Jesus came to save the lost. In Ezekiel 34.6, he says this, My flock wandering, wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or to seek for them. In Ezekiel 34.11, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Speaking of Jesus who came to save the lost, to seek out his sheep. That was Jesus' sole purpose, was to come to save the lost. And it's our duty, our responsibility, is to introduce people to him so that he can fulfill his purpose in their lives, that they can make a decision. And Luke 4.16, and I'm going to have to pick it up. Luke 4.16-21 through 21 says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, the Jewish rabbis at the time attributed this scripture in Isaiah to, to the Messiah. They, that's, what, that's what this scripture referenced, was the Messiah. And how shocked they must have been to hear Jesus say, Hey, y'all, it's me. Probably didn't say it like that. <laughs> and it says this year here, this, this year of the favor of the Lord, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor was, was actually in regards to the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee. And that's described in Leviticus 25 if you want to read about it. But it says uh, every seventh year was a sabbatical year for the nation. The land was allowed to rest. And every 15 year after Fiftieth uh, year after seven sabbaticals was set apart as the year of jubilee, and the main purpose of this special year was the balancing of the economic system. Every fifty years, the slaves were set free and returned to their families. Property that was sold was reverted to the original owners. All debts were canceled, and the land lay fallow as men and beasts rested and rejoiced in the Lord. In the Lord, Lord, every fifty years was the year of the Lord's favor. But Jesus comes along and he, he ascribes this to himself. And he begins to say, this is referring to my ministry. You see, Jesus was not referring to an economic or a political sense, but in a physical and spiritual sense. He came 
to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He came to fulfill this scripture. And not just for you or me, but everybody in this community. And the great news is, is that we get to proclaim this great news as well. It's such an honor and a blessing to be able to share the gospel with people. And if we could just get that through our, our noggins, I think it would be a little bit easier to go out and minister to people instead of be so worried that someone might talk about you behind your back if they don't receive the good news. In Romans 10, 11-13 it says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In Matthew 11.28, it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, in this particular scripture, Paul was making a point that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. But in our today's world, in our society, the same can be applied to, to the people of this world. There's no distinction between the rich and the poor. There's no distinction between white-collar and blue-collar workers. There's no dis distinction between the weak or the strong, book-smart or street-smart, tall or short, those who grew up in church or those who never stepped foot in one. There's no distinction. God loves them all equally. And the great news that we have to offer is if they will just believe on Him, there is a guarantee that they will not be put to shame, that they will not be disappointed. That's a good guarantee. It's amazing that, that so many people want to push away when there's, there's that kind of guarantee involved. It's amazing that I did for a while. What was I thinking? And not only does this mean that one day in heaven, but it also means right here today. You know, I'm, I'm thankful that one day I get to spend time in heaven, but I'm also thankful that, that I can have a little bit of heaven on earth right now. Jesus has also put out an open call for all of those who need rest. He says, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. How many people are, are, are heavy laden from time to time? I've been there and I thank God that he's there with open arms ready to give me rest. And I want you to know there's a world of people out there that are weary and heavy laden. And the offer is extended to them as well. In Romans 10, 14... It says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? See, 1014 is, a, is, a, is the next verse here. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, in verse 13. But how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? See, we've looked that Jesus came for the lost. We see that he has a heart for sinners and that everyone who calls on him will be saved. That's all great news. But we're still missing something. If all this is true, how will they call on him if they don't know him? See, the fact of the matter is, if you, you, know, if you find out that, that Fry's has a, has a great sell on watermelons and you really want some watermelons... But if you don't know they're on sale, you can't take advantage of that, right? If you don't know about the deal, you can't take advantage of it. 
And the same is true here that there's an offer being extended to all of creation that they would come and know the Lord Jesus Christ and be made new, that they would have a peace that surpasses all understanding. They would have forgiveness of their sins and they could stand before the throne boldly and confident. But if they don't know, they won't have the opportunity to partake in that, in that gift that's being offered out. So the truth is that that's our responsibility in this world. That was our, the, the, the Great Commission was our call to go out there and share this with people. To tell people about a God who loves them, about Jesus who gave up everything for them. To tell them that they might be set free and they might be made brand new. The truth is that even when we go out there and it seems like we're not being effective, it seems like what we're doing is not making a difference. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, you guys ever heard the story of, of uh, the little boy who was running along the beach and all these starfish had gotten washed up on the beach and he ran and he was picking up the starfish one at a time and running and putting them back in the ocean because they would die if they didn't go back out with the tide. And he kept going. There's thousands of starfish across this beach and he's running one at a time. And this old man comes up to him and he says, what are you doing? You're not making it. Look how many there are. You're not making a difference. And he goes, well, I just made a difference to this one. And he runs and puts it in the ocean. You know, there's going to be times we'll go out there and it seems like we're constantly being rejected. The people are rejecting the love of Christ. But the truth is, there are some that will make an impact in their lives. They'll make a difference in their lives. And we don't even know what kind of impact that will make. There was a, a great video that I saw on uh, uh, YouTube or GodTube that was uh, basically showing how one person makes a difference in someone's life and how that exponentially increases across the world. And they, they started in this coffee shop and, and this guy is buying coffee and he, he goes up and he, he, he says something to the guy at the coffee shop and makes an impact in her life. And it shows this, this chain as, of people getting saved as they go because this one man talked to this girl about God, told him about Jesus. And it shows this long chain and at the end of probably a dozen or two dozen people, it shows the, the last guy in the chain to walk back in this coffee shop. And he walked right by the guy that first talked to that girl. This young man was saved and he never even knew he made an impact. And the same goes for us. We'll never know, even, even if we're just planting a seed in someone's life, we'll never know the impact that we're making. So all we can do is be obedient even when it seems like nothing's working, nothing's going on, that we're not making a difference. Because I want you to know that God is at work in this world. So with that in mind, I think as we go out to evangelize, we also need to be prepared for what might happen as we go to tell people about, about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The truth is that there are going to be times when you share the gospel and people are going to think you're crazy. The Bible says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. They don't get it. It's, it's nonsense to them. And until God touches their heart, the, that's the Holy Spirit's responsibility is to, to testify to their heart that they need a Savior. And until that happens, or until that they, they make that decision 
they're just going to keep rejecting it. You could, you could probably remember a time that was like that for you in your life. You know, there's going to be opposition when we go to preach the gospel to this world. And we need to be prepared so that we are not hurt. You know, it's so easy to be hurt when someone rejects you when you're trying to minister to them. It's so easy to be put off. We need to make sure that, that we don't let the devil use that opportunity to push us away, to stop us in our mission to reach this city. We also need to understand, like I said, that it's not our responsibility to save them. I remember it was really hard for me for a time, especially like in healing. I would pray for people for healing, and, and if it didn't happen right away, I was like, I felt like I had to, you know, give an account for God. Same thing when you're preaching the gospel. You know, sometimes we have this, we feel like we have this need to give an account for God if it's not working. And we need to recognize that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be obedient, to share the gospel. In the case of healing, our responsibility is to lay hands on the sick and, and the Bible says they will recover. But it's not my responsibility to make sure they're healed. That's, that's God's job. That's His responsibility. Matter of fact, I think that's a, the biggest problem we can get ourselves into is when we start trying to do God's job. We also know that when people reject Jesus, they're not necessarily rejecting you. There will be times when you're ministering the gospel and we feel like a rejection of the gospel is a rejection of ourselves. and They're not actually rejecting you. Because the truth is when they reject you, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting Christ in you. John 15, 18-19 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, the truth is that you're going to reach opposition. There are going to be people that will be offended. There are going to be people that, that they might say hurtful things. Fortunately, we live in a country that you're most likely not going to be physically harmed. And truthfully, once you get out there and, and do a little preaching, do a little evangelistic work, you realize that the most you might get is a polite, I'm not interested. And it's funny how that still stings as well. But the truth is that we're really blessed in America to have the freedom to preach without any real form of persecution. But be prepared that even when you're doing God's work, you're going to come up against opposition. But that in no way means that we don't have the Great Commission to fulfill. We look at a couple examples in the Bible of this very thing of, of people going out and ministering the Gospel and people believing. In Acts 8, 12, 13, we, we read about Philip again. We talked about him earlier. It says, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. These are, are men of the Bible walking out in the Great Commission. Philip went down here and he's preaching the good news and he found out that they're being baptized left and right, men and women. And, and uh, if you've heard me teach before, baptism in the book of Acts was much like we do our altar calls. They, instead of saying, let's say a prayer, they just get up here and, and in the water they went. That was their, their confession of faith. That was their, their altar call. And we find out that people are getting saved left and right because of why? He was preaching the good news about the kingdom. You know what, if we don't preach the good news, nobody's going to get saved. Or at least someone else is going to have to do it for us. And like I said, I never want to stand before Jesus and say, I'm sorry somebody else had to do the job that you called me to do. 
And Acts 13, 47-48 says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Did you know that you are a light in this world? A light to a dying and lost generation. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, believed. You see, the truth is that there's rejoicing in heaven. There should be rejoicing in us when people come to know the Lord, when the lost return home. In Luke 15, 4-10, it says this, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? You know, we find that even one is important. Every last one is important to God because you know that, that God wants none to perish. And when he comes home, he Oh, and says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friend and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. And then it says. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, this is reading from verse 8 now, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Can you believe that? There is rejoicing in heaven. The angels rejoice for every person that comes home. For every person that is brought into the fold, every person that gets saved, there is rejoicing in heaven. You know, if we preach the gospel obediently for the rest of our lives and we only lead one person to the Lord, we've been obedient and we've done our job and there will be rejoicing in heaven. The last scripture that I want to look at today is Romans 15.20. It says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. It's true. As a church, we want to grow. We want to get larger. Primarily so we have a greater sphere of influence. Every person that we add to our congregation means that there's more people that we can reach for the gospel. But we want to make sure that we're doing it in the right way. Our goal is not to shift the saints from church to church. Our goal is to reach people for the lost. We want to go out into the highways and the byways, people that have never known the Lord. We're not trying to play holy musical chairs. Because in that case, even though our congregation might grow, the church has not grown. The church of Jesus Christ. But only a congregation at the expense of another. One thing we're always going to be very careful to do, even when we have our outreaches and we have people going, is we're not trying to steal members from other churches. Now that's not to say that our, our doors aren't open if someone has to leave for a legitimate reason or for whatever's going on, but our goal is definitely not to steal from other churches because they have a purpose as well. The same purpose as ours, to reach the lost. But we want to, we want to not build on somebody else's foundation, but we want to go out into the highways and the byways and lead new people to the Lord. There's plenty of people out there that need Jesus that we don't have to do it that way. As a church, our goal is to reach the unreached, to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And our vision, as we looked at today, the evangelize, equip, and empower, 
is to evangelize the lost. And we'll look next week is, is what's the next step after we've led them to the Lord, after we've brought them into the fold, is we want to equip them. We want to equip the saints. And then finally, we want to empower them to do the same thing, empower them to fulfill their calling that God has for their life. Let's go and stand to our feet.